Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. Your host, Dr. Joe Tata, leads the conversation around the way pain is treated in the U.S. and around the world with experts from the fields of medicine, physical therapy, nutrition, personal development, exercise, psychology, and more. Each week, you can listen to receive free information about ways to treat and reverse chronic persistent pain. Now, here is Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, thank you for joining me for another week of the Healing Pain Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Today's episode will serve both the clinician who treats pain, as well as patients who suffer with musculoskeletal pain through education about pain mechanisms and the active care necessary to recover. My expert guest today is Annie O'Connor. Annie is a physical therapist. She has earned the title of orthopedic clinical specialist, which is a board specialization through the American Physical Therapy Association. She's also the chief clinical officer for the Musculoskeletal Partnership at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, formerly known as the Rehab Institute of Chicago. She recently co-authored an incredible book called A World of Hurt, a Guide to Classifying Pain, which offers a research-supported paradigm shift in managing musculoskeletal pain by promoting effective and efficient outcomes. Annie lectures nationally and internationally on the pain mechanism classification system, neurodynamic evaluation and treatment, mechanical diagnosis and therapy of spine and extremities, kinetic chain evaluation, and exercise prescription as represented in the book, A World of Hurt. Now, if you've been following this podcast, you know that I've had on probably some of the world's top practitioners and researchers in the field of pain. But if you stick with this interview today, I know that you'll agree that this episode is perhaps the best I've released because Annie is able to hold the space as a pain researcher, a master clinician, and a humanitarian. And that's why I believe today's episode is so great. To accompany today's episode, Annie has provided three amazing tools that I highly, highly, highly recommend you download so you can follow along with the training. The first is called the Yellow Flag Risk Form. These are 13 questions that can help you identify which domain to target in the care of pain. The next is the Activity Traffic Light, which is a teaching tool and a guide to safe movement when you have pain. And the last is what's called the Lamp Analogy, which can be used to explain pain mechanisms in a way that is simple and easy. On today's episode, Annie will talk you through what these three forms are and how to use them and what they mean. So make sure you take the time to download it. So to download it, all you have to do is go to the URL, www.drjotata.com forward slash 117 download. That's www.drjotata.com forward slash 117 download. Or you can pick up your phone and you can text 117 download to the number 44222. That's 117 download to the number 44222. Okay, take the time to download the three free handouts before you begin. I know that you will love Annie, you'll love her work, and you'll love her passion as much as I do. Let's begin and meet the incredible Annie O'Connor. Hey, Annie, welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. It's great to have you here today. Hey, Joe, thank you so much for uh, having me. I'm really honored, actually. Thank you. 
You wrote an amazing book, which we're going to talk about later. It's called A World of Hurt. And really, it's a world of information for any practitioner who's interested in learning about pain and chronic pain in all shapes, sizes, and forms. You and I were just talking before the podcast about how many years you've been practicing, which is you're practicing about 34 years, you said, and you're currently working at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, which used to be the Rehab Institute of Chicago. But just tell everyone a little bit about your kind of trajectory and how you stepped into the world of physical therapy and treating people with pain. Well, thanks, because I think, you know, as you and I were talking, that that pretty much gets everybody into their career. And then you realize at some point you're either going to stay with that or you're going to move out of that. But uh, myself, I had to go to a physical therapist. And, And the really funny story on how I got into physical therapy was being the oldest of five kids and parents that were basically just making it, they were never going to allow their oldest child to go to school on sports scholarships. I mean, that just wasn't going to happen. I distinctly remember the day my mom said to me, you know, I know you're gifted in these sports and you're going through this rehab with these sport people, but look, you need to have a direction. You're not going to college because people want you to play sports. So at the time I was, I was rehabbing a knee injury, et cetera. And I had started to pay attention a little more to what was my surroundings and realizing, wow, what a great job this is. These people, they're wearing sweatsuits, they're working out with athletes. And so I'm inquiring a little bit more about the services that I obviously was seeking. And they said, well, we're physical therapists. I didn't even know what I was going to. I was just told to go. So at that home, I remember that day I come home and I said, hey, I know what I want to be. I want to be a physical therapist. And my mom is like elated. She thinks this is being a nurse. She thinks this is great. And then I come to really discover how difficult it is to get into physical therapy school. And fortunately for my sports uh, acumen that I had and the swim coach really, really wanted me there. The next thing I know, I received a letter that I was in the physical therapy program. So my journey into physical therapy probably was out of some kind of necessity to go play sports at college, but then deeply changed into a passion to want to serve people. And probably is the the funny story about it. And then really, the next funny story of that is... I would only have it that I was going to work at that time, the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. And uh, I remember showing up that day. It was like a catacall to apply for jobs. You really didn't have resumes and CVs and interviews. You (laughs) showed up and there were 45 people waiting in line for a 15-minute segue to hopefully get the one or two jobs that were available because they were a very popular employer. And I'll never forget the time when I was being interviewed at that time. I was, the guy was like, well, we don't take new graduates on our spinal cord floor. And I only wanted to do spinal cord. Mm. And I was like, really? I said, well, what's it going to take for me to be employed with you? You know, I'll work in food service. I'll do whatever it's going to take because I want to work for the number one rehab institute. And I think he just liked my spunk or that or God really wanted me to be there. One of the two. So. The next thing I know, I'm working for the Rehab Institute of Chicago and been there for 33 straight years, entering my 34th year. And it has been, they have never given me a reason to leave. 
And more importantly, they've showed me about every level of service for pain-related disability and functional disability that you could imagine. So with that, they've nurtured a young clinician into being kind of sometimes a powerhouse teacher just because of the experiences that they've awarded me. So I would tell you that through that, there's been a lot of changes, obviously. You get frustrated. You get very frustrated that you think your skills and your knowledge are going to cut it to only realize that it doesn't. And then you seek because you think you're not smart enough. So get another degree, get another certification, go to another continuing ed course, (laughs) stalk another master clinician to realize that doesn't work. And maybe I should just go into management because that's what this degree was about. And then I'll never forget the 1995 combined sections, David Butler speaking about pain mechanisms. And that day I knew as he was explaining that there's six reasons why people hurt. I was like, wow, this is it. This is where that works. This is why that works. This is where this fits in. No wonder these can write a book about that because that works for this. And it was the largest aha moment I've had. And since 1997, we've been on a mantra to really put pain mechanism classification into servicing pain, spasticity, functional disability. And three books later, three training manuals later, you all of a sudden have a published book. So that's been a, a whirlwind for me, but that, that gives you a short synopsis of a, a very long career. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a wonderful introduction. What I love about podcasts is not only do I get to interview great people, but I also discover I have so much in common with yeah. my peers. So you and I both are obviously physical therapists. We both started our career in adult rehab at major teaching hospitals. We both have moms that are nurses. Mm-hmm. We're both collegiate athletes. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think what else you said there. A couple of the, a couple of the things you said there kind of made lights go off in my head. But, you know, and I think, you know. You went to a lot of continuing ad, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> did a lot. I've been a PT since 1996. So I don't know what is that yeah. to me, 20 something years. So I did a lot of continuing education. No, I think definitely when you're in a, a longer career, you go through like, I think a lot of honeymoon phases with different things before you, what I call you kind of get married. And then you say, right. okay, there's no perfect way potentially. And I have all these different things that I can really pull from that, that help you. But you start to kind of figure things out. You said something that kind of a light bulb went off in my head. You said when you started practicing that new graduates were not allowed on the spinal cord injury floor, which is interesting yeah. to me. Because they weren't, it's funny because where I worked, I started at a small teaching hospital here in New York City, which is now closed. It breaks my heart. It was called St. Vincent's Medical Center. Mm -hmm. And they had the best inpatient slash outpatient rehab facility because it was a level one trauma center. So it's a lot of great, interesting things. You got to to really hone your skills. But when I graduated in 1996, 1997, there was this underlying current of before you go into private practice, you should first work in an adult rehab and see everything you can possibly see in adult rehab before you go kind of venture out into um, outpatient physical therapy. I'm not really so sure that's, we still have that current now because now a lot of PTs just graduate school and they go right into outpatient. And 
I'm just wondering if you can comment on it and what your current thoughts and opinions are on our training, taking our training from our DPT now, and should you first like be exposed to, let's say, acute care and inpatient rehab before you go into, let's, into, let's say, outpatient private practice? That's a great observation, too. You're right. I mean, we did not hire new grads on any of our inpatient floors, especially spinal cord, and we were most known for that. So our most experienced clinicians were there, which really was a blessing for me. I'm here, I'm a young clinician, and I am working with high-end therapists that have been doing this for a long time. Now, 2018, we're all new grads on the inpatient floors. It's a rarity to have someone with five years of experience on that floor. Or if they are, they're probably in a management role. Yeah. So that is flipped. Now, I'm like you, Joe, you going out into the outpatient world, you need to have a grounding of everything. You really need to know acute care situations and vitals and how to manage possible red flag situations and what they are and how sneaky they look sometimes. You need to really understand suffering and the yellow flags that are really going on and how everybody on their facade can look like just everything's so great. And as enticing as outpatient is because of the autonomy and things of that nature, right? It really yields a need for greater levels of experience. And I think that's partly what some of the problems that we deal with. We have you know, very young clinicians in our outpatient facilities who don't have that, that level of grounding or experience, or they may have gone through three outpatient affiliations and they're not even sure on how to take vitals and things like that. So I believe that we're not as well equipped with clinical training as we are right now with being great administrators, great researchers, great educators. We just don't really have that grounding of clinical training. It's been interesting. Just recently, I've been doing a little more teaching in the university level. I really am a postgraduate teacher, experienced clinicians. That's where I I think my giftedness is. And, And so I'm teaching now students. And I really kind of have this aha moment on, wow, these clinicians aren't ready to be clinicians. And how do we do that? Because I think that's, we've advanced our degrees, but we haven't advanced our clinical savviness. And there's a disconnect there. So I'm not sure what the answer is, but I can tell you that I think the solution is to get more clinicians involved in university teaching. And, Mm. And I know the group, that has brought me in and I'm enjoying it. I bring live demos all the time. I'm bringing patients with me all the time because they need to see applied principles into everything. I mean, I bring patients with spasticity in there because we use pain mechanism classification to manage spasticity. I bring chronic pain in there because they need to know how to have a tough discussion about yellow flags and how to explain the protective roles of the brain. And they need, they need they need to see that because that's what they're going to be doing. They're not just going to be going in there and running around doing little functional exercises. And you certainly at this day and age of payer performance with the new payer system going out where you're going to get a per capita rate and you better be effectively efficient, you're going to get six visits. Mm-hmm. So you don't have the chance anymore to do like we did when we came out of school, 
hey, and you can go to PT as long as you yeah, want to go yeah, to PT. Forever. It was, it was almost, with some insurances, it was unlimited. It was endless. You yeah, know, we had, endless. you know, the half Which packs, not, the ultrasound, the massage, no. a few exercises, three days a week. So you said something, and I want to get to some of the really important handouts you have, which I think are great. You've given people, but you threw a statement down there that I'm not even sure you said, but I want to kind of pull it back into our, our, our topic here. You said, this is what you said. I actually wrote it down. You said, you really need to understand suffering first. Yeah, we do. It gives me goosebumps actually, because if you're a physical therapist graduating today, and yes, maybe you did your affiliations where you did one in an inpatient and one in an adult rehab, but you knew you wanted to go into outpatient. My question is, if you don't spend a little bit of time beyond your affiliation, working with patients who are more chronic and potentially maybe sicker and potentially maybe even terminal, do you not fully grasp the full spectrum of human suffering? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I don't think we'll ever fully grasp it because it's, it's an individual situation. But the only way you can understand is, one, the word suffering alone. It's funny. It's a debatable word. People feel like, oh, we shouldn't be talking about suffering, the pain experience. I'm thinking, really? <laughs> I'm not on that one. This person's hurting. You can't see what's going on within them, but you can hear that things aren't going well. And so our ability to really listen and we have to screen. I mean, that's why I love that yellow flag risk form because it's going to take a quick screening of the known suffering relative to pain. And then it allows you to have a tough discussion about it because they've answered the question that invited you in. And as a clinician, you have to be delicate about asking that. But these people are, I don't think of people in pain. I think of people in suffering. Mm-hmm. We use pain as a catch word, but they wouldn't be coming to you. That's right. They're not coming to you for the pain. They're not coming to you because of the functional issues. They're coming to you because they're suffering. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so as a new grad, the clinicians that I get to teach now, the younger ones, I'm like, hey, understand why they're coming. They're not coming from pain. They're not coming for function. They're not coming for massage. They're struggling. Touch. They're struggling. They're, they're struggling, struggling yeah. and they're suffering. And you're now in a place to walk with that person. Beautifully said. I want to get to the yellow flag risk form, and we're going to do a little screen share. So if you're watching this video or you're watching on YouTube, it's great. If you're listening to it on your smartphone, don't worry. I gave you a link to download in the beginning. But before we get onto that form, just tell us, kind of give us an overview of what is the latest science telling us that we should prioritize as far as clinicians go, like as far as pain education goes? The biggest thing that is current is how we explain the brain's role in pain. This isn't new stuff. In the early 90s, we were very aware with explained pain and the movement, hey, the brain, the brain, the brain, the brain. But how we went about that may have not been as advantageous as we thought. In these coming times, the second movement with pain science is, no, you've got to get into the actual mechanisms that are involved in the brain. And as we collaborate, I work with a great pain researcher, Marwan Balicki, and it's been just so interesting to work side by side, clinician, pain researcher, 
Because here we wrote a book identifying these three mechanisms, central sensitivity, affective, motor autonomic, and then he's over here validating three different areas of the brain through fMRI brain physiology work that could be dominating in patient suffering. Mm -hmm. And when we finally got together and we were like, wow, we're talking the same thing. And I'm like, yeah, I don't need an fMRI to pick up what that is though. And but I can validate your thinking relative to these characteristics. I'm like, yeah, let's go. We need to do this. So when we get to the patient level of that, we really need to have the patient understand that your brain was wired to protect you. It was wired to protect you. And that pain is not a punishment mechanism. It is a protective mechanism. And that this is a normal situation. I mean, it's working in you and I, Joe, right here talking right mm -hmm. now. And be it that relative to what's going on and the suffering that's going on within your life, certain sections of your brain have elected to be in a more protective mode than others. And so I can't be blanketing my care in chronic pain and assuming that everything will just work out just fine. Mm -hmm. And those that have been suffering for a while know this already because they've been through all that. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And so they're ripe and ready to go. Interesting. I said, this would be no different than if you came in with a real bad bacterial infection, coughing and sputing up the green stuff. And I send you home with amoxicillin because I think that's going to get that virus. And you come back to me in two weeks and man, you're still as sick as a dog. And and I try to sell you amoxicillin again. You'd look at me like I got a, a third eye. You'd say, Doc, the amoxicillin's not working. Let's try a penicillin. And I would have to agree that I didn't get the right intervention for the right mechanism. And so getting our patients to understand that there are three different types of mechanisms within the brain is really important in itself. And they're all there to protect and they protect for different reasons. And for us to identify which one is dominating is going to be critical to changing the pattern of the suffering. Then we're ready. We're ready to either put the LAMP document up there and kind of give them a bigger picture, or we're ready to actually start talking about the three different mechanisms. You know? Excellent. Let's talk about the, the yellow flag risk form. Yeah, um, the yellow I'm, flag picks up two of those three really, great, really so uniquely. Gonna, yeah. I'm going to screen share and then you can, um, you can walk us through what this is and how it works and why it's beneficial yeah. and who should use it and all the good things we have here. Okay, so there you so go. So what you have is, what's unique about the yellow flag, just to give you a little history on it, it's been around for about 25, 30 years. George Linton put it together because he was frustrated that we had too many forms. And I think that's such a funny story because if anybody's working in a robust healthcare system today, you're frustrated because we have too many forms. <laughs> and what he did at that time, and this is where you have to understand, this is 25, 30 years ago. At the time, we knew that there were domains within the yellow flag for persistent pain that were relative to people's suffering. And those domains were quite simply fear avoidance behavior domain, emotional social domain, confidence in managing condition and pain control and hopes to get back to, to activity. So self-efficacy domain. And those three 
primary domains 25 or 30 years ago dominated suffering. Well, if we went into the chronic pain literature today, we would say the same exact thing. So we haven't really changed. So what George did at that time, which was just brilliant, is he said, okay, I'll take a few questions from the FABQ. I'll take two emotional social questions. I'll take some self-efficacy questions. I'm going to drop it into 13. I'm not putting any body parts on here because it isn't about the body part. It's about the suffering. And we're going to rock this and we'll use it as a screening form. And what we've come to learn is we're having a paper come out this year where we're showing the yellow flag risk form to be as robust as any functional measure out there. It actually can be used to classify two of the three pain mechanisms that we know exist within the brain. And it can be used as a screening tool to whether or not you should be taking a so-called top-down approach with your patient in the sense of pain science education. Mm. So that's a little history of it. It's made up to do that for you. Now, it scores over 130. You basically go through the form and add up their score. Question number three is the only one. It's an outlier question. If you look at that one, you'd see that all 10s were terrible or the worst. And then all of a sudden 10 here seems to be the best. So what you have to do in order to score that question is take their circle. So if they circle six, you go 10 minus six equals four. So then therefore the score of that question would be four. And it's an accumulative. So once you come out with your total score, now what we know about the total patients that score less than a 50 What's great about the page that you're going into are just going to share the domain. So we'll stay on that page if you don't mind. But uh, people who score under 50 have low central nervous system characteristics and their perceived suffering is low. Therefore, you as a physical therapist, occupational therapist, Cairo movement specialist should be really confident about taking a movement-based approach. Mm-hmm. And we should be looking for probably nociception to be dominating that mechanism of suffering. And thereby, we want to be very succinct with the type of exercises that we're doing with people. However, once we know the scores now are 51 to 64, we know they're at moderate risk, meaning there are central characteristics, there are perceived suffering that are relative to these domains, and your effectiveness in your exercise could be less, your effectiveness in your surgery could be less, interventions of injections could be less, because now you're working with someone who's probably a little bit more centrally dominated. And then we know the patients that are scoring over 65 are at significant risk, dominating central nervous system mechanism, and a top-down approach would be highly warranted. And really getting into the domains of their suffering would be needed. And so we color coded for you. You can see as you're scrolling down, you have questions 9, 11, 12, and 13 are all your fear avoidance questions. We know when patients score high in these questions, Joe, they are dominated by central sensitivity in in the document, just to kind of give you some idea of what you're dealing with. And we know that those patients would definitely need the traffic light guide as as the best piece of pain science education. So we've been studying this thing for too long. And then we know if if you move back up again and just show the domains for me again, we know that when the patients are dominated by questions three, 
and four and six and eight, they're dealing with confidence. And whether it's confidence in their ability, confidence in pain control, confidence in managing their condition, confidence in their general health, you as a therapist need to really start moving your treatment toward building their self-efficacy and confidence. And, and then lastly, the emotional domain, questions five and seven, depression and anxiety. We know when patients are scoring high in those domain, especially in our system, if they're scoring above a seven, we, we may want to run a pass, a pain, anxiety, symptom scale, or a PHQ-9 and really start appreciating uh, whether psychology should be involved within this picture on top of good non-pharmacy coping. And so what the yellow flag does is it just really, it's like a GPS for your pain science education. And what we've seen after studying it is we can really, we see patterns. I mean, we see the central sensitivity pattern. They score high on 9, 11, 12, and 13. And we see the effective mechanism they score high on three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. And so if those domains blow up, we know where we're dealing in dominating mechanisms. What's been so unique in some of the research that's coming out this year that we're sharing with people, albeit it's a low sample, but it's definitely launched us into a grant, is we can actually correlate the pattern of the yellow flag risk form. The central characteristics that we've been studying and presenting in those books in chapters six and seven specifically and the brain physiology of the different centers of the brain through fMRI. Mm. So this will be one of the first studies where you actually see characteristics and patterns on a outcome measure correlate with brain physiology and chronic pain. So it's very exciting times for us. But I can't speak enough of how 13 little questions. It's got an MDC of 11.95. So, you know, if you're making some grain changes you actually know that you're statistically significant in changing that suffering. That gives you a little preview of that. It's amazing work. I mean, right now, me as well as other physical therapists are probably using anywhere between two to <laughs> eight forms. Oh, totally. Um, maybe 10 if you really kind of, kind of dig into it. So let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Yeah, so please. One of the more common ones, the pain catastrophizing scale. Yeah. Um, the PCS, where... In this, in these 13 questions, would you pick up the data similar to the PCS? So the pain catastrophizing scale is similar to fear avoidance and central sensitivity. When we talk about central sensitivity as the overprotective mechanism where our words and thoughts and the way we analyze, is this safe or is this dangerous, is now having an effect on the descending inhibitory system, Okay. We know that's through sometimes the language that they use or sometimes the way they're analyzing. So in this, you would pick that up in questions 9, 11, 12, and 13 in fear avoidance. And those would be your questions that would be very similar to that scale. And another part of that study, that's or the paper that's coming out, it was a five-part study. We put the yellow flag up against the PDI, the pain disability index, the CSI, the catastrophizing symptom index. I might get that name wrong. Put it up against the PASS, the CESD-10, a depression scale. And what it was shown, it was as sensitive and as robust to pick up those sensitivities of those outcome measures just with one tool. So it is a scary time when you can almost statistically say one tool could do it all. 
It was just as robust as the ODI, the NDI, the lower extremity functional scale, the DASH. In fact, we could actually, with the yellow flag score, have an equation to predict the DASH and the lower extremity functional scale score. Mm. So we know it can represent not only the low risk group who are very exercise based, but the high risk group, which are very suffering based. And so we're very excited about that potential. That's why part of our future research is really putting it up more and more against other forms. We got a active study going right now in Canada where it's comparing it to ODI and start back in a just large sample back. And I think that's where we opened up on, hey, we're treating suffering. And suffering has been termed yellow flag. Right. And suffering of the yellow flags is defined as certain domains. And this is unchanged over 30 years. And But what we're not doing in the biopsychosocial approach, in our pain neuroscience, whatever our new buzzword is, <laughs> is we're not getting into what? What do I train? You know, and that's what I love about what we've been doing is going, okay, hey, if 9, 11, and 12 are high, this person doesn't know how to analyze movement-safe pain. They're dominated by central sensitivity. They're thinking everything is dangerous. We need to give them a credible analytical way to measure, is this safe or not? People that are dominated by central sensitivity, they are very intelligent people. Mm-hmm. They are very analytical people. They have taught themselves how to ignore and distract, which only pushes the brain into more protection. If you ignore a screaming child, what does the child do, Joe? Yells Screams more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to teach that. But these patients dominated by that mechanism who will score high on that form They're intelligent, analytical people who have taught themselves to distract and ignore, which puts the system into more sensitivity. And then beyond that, they have willpower greater than anybody you've ever seen. So they live in a yellow light, but they think it's a red light. Yeah. And so retraining them cognitively and behaviorally and functionally through the traffic light guide you'll see huge changes out of their suffering just by getting them to understand what movement-safe pain is. Now, a person who needs confidence in managing their condition and pain control, they may have elements of fear avoidance. They may have a low domain there. They probably won't respond to a traffic light guide education session. I'm not saying it's not worth your time, but don't expect big changes in that domain as if you were to use important and confidence scales to understand or their confidence in diaphragm breathing during really painful times and managing their control over opioids, you know, and how they manage their condition, how they understand their condition, how they're working on their general health. So different things relative to different domains. And as I look at this, would you recommend a practitioner um, obviously use this at the initial evaluation Should they potentially use it, let's say, halfway and then that at the end? Oh, actually, we use this every two weeks. Mm. I've done this every week. I've actually retested a domain after a session therapy 
to see if my education actually affected the way they're perceiving their suffering. So at right now, our standard of care in our practice is to use it every two weeks. We don't have time. We don't have time in visits anymore to say, am I affecting them with the education and the movement plan that I have brought about? So we consider this form is how we're tapping into suffering. We consider this form is how it's guiding us for our pain science education. Or other cognitive interventions. Or other cognitive interventions. So thereby, it is a form that we hold higher in its repeatedness within our care. Like our lower extremity functional scale, we'll do one at initial, we'll do one every month. The only time we ever use the FABQ at this point is in work comp or athletes because we know that this form, the fear avoidance section, is not sensitive enough for work comp. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is it doesn't delineate the fear avoidance behaviors between work activity and physical activity. Right. And so if we have work comp or athletes who are on disability, we will probably team that up. One, you're going to see them score high in that domain. But two, we're probably going to also do a FABQ to really understand, is it the fear of physical activity or is it the fear of the sport or work activity? Mm. And this is important because we talked also about the pain science is trying to tell us, hey, you need to do better at explaining gradual exposure and what to gradually expose them to. I I love when people say, well, the literature says gradual exposure. Like, well, like to what? Not to Pilates. It's really asking us relative to the dominating mechanism. If you're in a fear avoidance situation, you're going at the avoiding activities. That's right. And if the avoiding activities are work-related, how are you going to know that? Your FABQ in a work comp situation would be far more sensitive to pull that out for you to design that gradual exposure program. Speaking of movement, let's, should we hop over to the activity traffic light? Let's hop. Yeah. Because, and they're kind of segue. They're kind of intertwined. They're yeah, segue. they're intertwined. They're intertwined. Yeah. And of course, if you're listening to this, you can download all of these. I gave you the link in the beginning of the podcast. Okay, there you go. Yeah, now the pain science literature, if I said, what's the second thing outside of explaining pain mechanisms and the protectiveness of the brain and the three different levels of the brain, the second thing it's asking us to do is explain movement-safe pain. It's really asking us to return the control to the patient of, is what I'm doing safe and I should keep doing it? Or is it something I'm doing too much too fast and I need to pace myself? Or no, is this really presenting as a harmful situation and I should be stopping? Because we do not want to get into the situation, one, that we as a practitioner are telling people what's safe or not safe. You're not returning locus of control for them. And often you know that you have a patient that's doing this to you because they say, well, should I do this? You know, do you think I should be doing this? And, and we get trapped as a provider into going, yeah, yeah, you're good, you're good. Well, you need to kind of take that as a lead on saying, whoa, wait, no, I've got to set them up to do their own analysis. Because again, central sensitivity, intelligent, analytical people, you need to turn that over to them. This is a beautiful 
way at cognitive exercise. I can't tell you how many people I send home with a traffic light guide and their lower extremity functional scale and say, hey, by the next visit, I want you to take all those moderately difficult activities and I want you to tell me what the light is. Yeah, they're great ways to expose people, aren't they? Yeah. So you just need to think about it. So what this actually, in our book, we used to call it the activity pyramid. And we had a patient actually tell us that they hated the activity pyramid. This is like such a funny story. And said, you need to put this into a traffic light guide because a traffic light guide is the way people make decisions. And I was like, wow, this is brilliant. So we had this guy who was going through our program basically design this relative to the education that we were giving them. And basically all you got is you've got the three lights, red, green, and yellow. You've got an area up at the top where you're asking people to baseline their pain. So whether their pain normally is at a 10 or a 7 or a 13 or whatever they like to put it at. And then we also like to identify what we call is a harm check. And a harm check just simply is something outside of your pain that you can use every day that tells you if this doesn't change, then I know that my condition is unchanged. So it may be a range of motion at a certain body segment. It may be a function, brushing your teeth, putting your underwear on, Anything of that nature, what you need to understand about a harm check is that it needs to come from the patient because they have to be confident in doing it and it has to be related to the opposite body part that you're working with, okay? So once you come up with that, then it's pretty a simple form. You're picking up the activities that they want to return to, right? And then you're starting to kind of introduce those activities And you're starting to look at how the pain behaves during the activity and after so that you can analytically say, well, then are those symptoms that I'm incurring during that activity safe or are they presenting as a red light? Now, what I love about the thing, the number one check on each of those boxes is Did you lose any change in your range of motion or function? So immediately we're getting people off of how the pain behaves and into the effect it had on the function or the motion. We always say that that is more credible than the pain. Pain lies, but motion doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so if you can get patients to really say, well, look, I know it hurt. I know it hurt, but look, your motion is no different and your function is no different. Now, because the only way you could be a red is if if you lost 50% of that ability. So if you lost 50%, well, then we know we're a red. But if they're no different, then the only thing you can be is a yellow or a green and both of them are safe. You've done no harm. And then we can start to look through, well, is it a pace situation or a push situation? Because yellow would be, hey, a little too much too fast. It's safe, but we're going to pace this. And green would be, look, this is good to go, safe. We're going to push this and add more. Keep going, right? Keep going. So it gives you just that idea of breaking it down. That's what the second and the third steps are, is how it persists or is it back to baseline quickly. And then the A, B, and C on there are just to recognize that people are at different parts of their journey. I mean, we can use this with acute situations that are 
four to eight weeks along, or we can use these in the subacute, eight to 16, or we can obviously use this in the chronic where they're 16 and greater. And the only thing I always like to point out when I'm working with someone is the longer you've had it, look at how much longer we'll allow you to be sore after the activity. (laughs) You're safe, but you're sore. And, And then it gives a great action plan. And so we really tag the patient with applying this. And and all you've got there is, look, everything I just said is detailed, written out. I mean, we want that for a patient, like a Broadway script, so that they could feel that they could go in there and and answer their own questions. This is about returning the control to the patient. Yeah, it's a really great tool to use with patients. It's a great, I mean, you really have an activity hierarchy here is really what you've created in a way that's simple and easy to use for, which is great for the practitioner as well as the client. Well, like I said, when your patients make your patient education materials for you, you (laughs) probably realize you've got a gold standard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's funny you say that because it also points to the fact that I think as practitioners, we should be collaborating with our patients more. We do. We need, we're in a partnership. The best partnership ever is the pilot co-pilot. I mean, anybody's watching Sully these days. I mean, that, that, that was the epitome of what it takes. And we are the, co- we are the co-pilots, not the pilots. Okay, the and then we got, the we got one more awesome thing here that you, you've created. This uh, actually, this is the way we start to introduce how we get pain. Again, the pain science literature is very much about like, look, we have got to explain pain. We've got to explain the pain alarm system. And then we also have to be, as we enter in the brain's role in pain, we have to be succinct with these three different mechanisms. So this came out, again, this was a piece of material that came really from my dad, and a very funny story. But just to go through the document before we go into those funny stories is we always thought that there's, look, five steps to a pain-free life, very similar to how you would get your work, your your lamp to work. So like if you walked in your room, you flicked on your lamp and your lamp didn't work, you'd go through a series of steps to figure out why that lamp didn't work. Well, the same analogy should be taken when your body's hurting, we should go through a series of steps to identify what mechanism is at play to why I hurt. And so similar, when your lamp doesn't work, step one is look, hey, check the light bulb and check the switch on the wall, right? Well, what is that in the body? In the body that is, well, at the body part, was there a sign of injury? And is there the presence of inflammation? And is this inflammation chemical or is it mechanical? Where it's got directional preference. And if it's not an inflammatory mechanism, isn't an ischemic mechanism where the body itself just needs to be pushed harder with progressive exercise, whether that be stretching or strength training, or functional-based or motor control-based. And if you're working through that and those exercises are not seeming to have an effect, then we know we need to kind of start to consider step two would be, wow, maybe it's not so much the body part, maybe it's the nerve going to the body part. And in that sense, it's a referred situation. It's a peripheral nervous situation. And either that nerve is getting trapped somewhere whether it be at the spine or a muscle along its path, or it's just gotten tight like any other tissue and it needs to be utilizing a neurodynamic approach in order to affect its health. And that wouldn't be any different 
in the lamp that like, hey, okay, it wasn't the bulb, the switch, it was the cord. And those are the things that we can see, Joe, right? Those are the things that we can see and we find tangible and we like the MRIs because they can maybe correlate with us. But if we're doing these neurodynamic exercises, these progressive exercises and things are not working and they're starting to score high in the yellow flag, and they're showing you a discrete pattern in the yellow flag, we've got to start working ourselves into things that we can't see, which lie within the brain and the three unique mechanisms that lie within the brain. And I always like to use an analogy. I said, this would be in your lamp. You know this. How many people actually go to the basement on the circuit breaker? You got some good ones. They knew that the sister was microwaving and blow drying the hair at the same time and blew the circuit. But then you'll be like surprised at how many don't even know about the circuit breaker. Well, in your brain, the thalamus and the amygdala, the fear and threat centers of the brain, they're interpreting every signal coming into the system. Every signal coming in is interpreted. Is it safe or is it dangerous? And so that circuit breaker in your brain may need to flick the switch a little bit because we're thinking that this is more dangerous when it's really safe. You know, now I learned the traffic light guide and I'm gradually exposing myself back to avoiding activities and I'm still hurting. So we got to consider that, hey, maybe this wasn't so much that mechanism within that part of the brain. Maybe this lies within a different part of the brain. And within the brain and the anterosigulate, the ACC, the insula, the lateral orbital frontal cortex, or what we like to tell our patients is, look, your coping center. Mm-hmm. When you're struggling with conflict and emotions and we're on step four and you're struggling with conflict and social situations, know how wired your brain is to protect you when you're not coping. And when you're not coping, it may pick certain body parts in your body and give you symptoms in a way to distract you or divert you to go get help. But the issue is not in the tissue. The issue is in the brain and where you're not coping. And again, how if I screen on a yellow flag and I see the pattern of self-efficacy and emotional social struggling, I know that I'm dealing with a different mechanism. And here, as much as the traffic light might be helpful, my ability to help them through pain journaling and understanding and seeing the connection between emotions and stress and symptoms and guiding them into different coping mechanisms non-pharmaceutically and getting them back to some of the things that they want to do in life would be far more effective than working on a traffic light guide situation. And we liken that in the lamp to, hey, this is your electrical provider. He's decided to shut your electricity off. And so it's going to take a call to the big guy to get your electricity back on, you know, and then the last step five, hey, if we've gotten you back to great life activities, you're coping, your yellow flag risk form is improving and you're still suffering, we do have one other mechanism and it's a very unique mechanism and it's in the motor sensory cortex of the brain. It's been called all kinds of things from phantom pain to CPRS one and two to RSD to, oh my gosh, I've heard, I think I've heard so many names, but just the understanding that how cool it is that your brain in severe trauma sometimes, or even if you think this should have been a trauma, or that you elect to use words that 
suggest trauma or such things that your brain will actually go into a protective mode where it starts to forget itself or neglect itself. It's called cortical disinhibition or smudging if you're reading the literature and where the brain is actually losing representation of the body part. And at this unique situation, how important it is not to explain traffic like guys and pain journaling, how now we need to work with the uniqueness of uh, re-imaging the brain to the body with left-right discrimination, graded motor imagery, localization, precision, graphesia, stereogenesis, all these things to retrain that brain-body connection through the motor sensory cortex. And we liken that with, at this point, you called the provider. It wasn't that. We actually had to go now and realize that that little box on the pole lost recognition of your home. And so your electricity was going to your neighbor. And we had to literally send the little guy up there, run up there and re-image the home so that you could receive the electricity so the lamp could work. So in a way here, we give this completeness that we've got to figure out the mechanism to why you hurt and not use an anatomical or a pathology-based explanation to that because we know that that will never represent the three mechanisms in the brain. Wow. Wow. I I am blown away. (laughs) I'm going to stop screen sharing for a minute so I can see you. Okay. I'm glad you didn't watch me do that whole thing because I think I was getting quite gregarious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not sure people really... Uh, I think I broke a sweat, Joe. That's good. Well, hey, you know, the thing about pain science that people don't understand is that it's very, very... The science of it is extremely complicated. It is. There are few people, and there are truly few people in this world who can take complex concepts like that and turn them into something that is simple, that the practitioner can relate to, and that most importantly, of course, the patient can relate to. And people won't realize, but those three handouts you have that they can download for free is probably a PhD's worth of information. Oh, it is. I mean, if I had to put the numerous amount of references that exist on that, it, it's actually an undaunting task that I couldn't actually do. Right. You know, one of my biggest influences in life is the Lord. Is the Lord. I, I'm a very big Christian, and I know he has ordained my life to do something like this. Right. And so I have a giftedness. I, it's not coming from pride. It's I've been gifted to see the simple side to some complex situations. And I mean, he's awarded me just an incredible amount of patience to do that in the institute that I work for. And things of this come out of those kind of those kind of situations. And, uh, you know, and a mom and dad who just have been really so influential in what's going on. I mean, I told you my dad actually, this is the funny story behind the lamp, right? It took eight years to write The World of Hurt. Fortunately, if it wasn't for Melissa Kolsky, it probably wouldn't have happened because she's the co-author who, she just gets stuff done, right? If it existed on my table, I might've been the one that was charging it through the hospital, but she just gets stuff done. So we're eight years getting this thing done. And I'll never forget my dad who did all the logos on every chapter, actually. He kept going, when do you get the get book done? And geez, get the book done. And then he starts reading and he's like, wow, man, you need to have something funny to go along with this. Nobody's going to read anything. And, and then he's reading it more. And he's like, 
as I see it, this is, he's an electrician by trade. He goes, as I see it, this is no different than a lamp. And I'm here at a dinner table one night and he's explaining me the lamp and he's explaining the lamp's connection to the different mechanisms. And I'm sitting there listening to this man going, that's brilliant, dad. And he goes, you need logos. So I started to do, he's a drawer. He draws, he's like a jack of all trades. And he starts to, you know, so I drew up some logos for you. And now we're two weeks from the publisher. The publisher has said, please, no more. You can't put any more information. <laughs> and so I call him up and I said, no, you got to look. I call Melissa up. Look, you got to look at these drawings. She loves them. I'm like, well, you got to look at them. And the publisher's like, this is amazing. We're going to have somebody illustrate these drawings. So this is the kind of stuff, Joe, right? When simple people come together and try to make a complex topic come to life. And so the lamp came to life through dad. The traffic light guide came to light through a person who suffered and really understood what we were trying to do. And I think as clinicians, we have got to open ourselves up more to having those relationships with our patients Yeah, yeah. because they have the answers. They got them. Yeah, they do. They're taking whatever information you're giving them in their yeah. mind. They're trying to make sense of it basically totally yeah totally i mean it so it's so important i mean just me listening to all this it's like a, a wonderful like continuing education session and a cognitive intervention all at once so thank you for that so You're welcome. if i were to ask you as we start to wrap up and talk about your book and the other things you have going on where should the focus of our future research and teaching go well i mean i i can't tell you where everyone else's focus should be. (laughs) I've learned to keep my opinions to myself in some respects, but I do know where mine is. You know, mine is definitely right now into the strength of the LFI GRIS form. We know it's got merit and I know we'll continue to research it and put it up against other forms in really validating the central nervous system. I know Dr. Balicki and myself are really motivated right now by being able to show that these characteristics are unique, these mechanisms are unique, and the brain physiology goes right with it, and thereby the interventions are unique. And so through matched and unmatched trials, we'll be validating the central nervous system because I think that's going to be the future on where we need to go for this thing called chronic pain or persistent pain or whatever name you want to give it. So I know that's where our focus is going. I would love to see pain mechanisms become a bigger entity in the education in our curriculums. The opportunities I've had in physical therapy and chiropractic universities to train clinicians, that it's just, if I could, the, the numerous amount of emails and thank yous, just mm-hmm. because it's simple, yeah. right? You got six mechanisms. <laughs> so if you can now organize everything into six, your grocery cart, it could be very freeing instead of organizing everything by every anatomy part or every possible pathology that exists, even though we have no reliability or validity within these classification systems. I'm not saying that they aren't important. What I am saying is that we as providers need to be proficient in classifying based on anatomical, when anatomical is needed, classifying by pathology, when pathology is warranted, and we should be just as good at classifying by mechanism. 
and recognizing and putting that at just as is much importance. And so that would be my push is that you as a provider get good at that. I hope that answered the question. Yes, it answered the question beautifully. Um, Annie, it's been great having you on. I've interviewed a lot of people in all walks of life as far as pain science goes and professions. I got to say, some of your information just pulls together so many different areas of medicine, physical therapy, psychology. You even started to get into a little spiritual realm at the end, which I didn't touch on, but um, (laughs) maybe I can have you back on. We can talk about that. But I think it's great work. So please tell everyone how they can access your book, get in touch with you. Of course, tweet to you to say, hey, this is a great podcast. Thank you so much. Well, Joe, first, I want to thank you. I mean, I've been following you a little bit more now on Twitter, and I love what you're doing with foods. I mean, you and I are on this words, moves, and foods bandwagon to cure chronic pain. I just love it. So first off, thank you for retweeting things from the world of herds, and thank you for having me on. This has been my pleasure, and I'm glad that you take some from it. But if people really want to get into any dynamic dialogue with me, I ask them to use the world of hurt Gmail. It's just world of hurt, all small case, world of hurt two at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, the little at symbol and then world of hurt two. And we're really trying to get the word out, get the information more out. And we'll have a world of hurt website coming up soon where we put the testimonies and videos and kind of try to give more action steps and provide all the information. But, you know, it's really a movement that's to serve. It's really not a movement to do anything other than that. Excellent. The book, can they find the book on Amazon? Yeah, the book is on Amazon, or you can also go to the book's website, www.musculoskeletal-pain.com. And the only reason why you would purchase from the website, know first off that As an author, I get nothing for the book. I love writing a book where you get no money from it. All the money that I get that you buy from the website goes back to feed the research and education fund that we use to train the pain mechanism classification system. So first, that's that's a very important thing. And so whether you purchase on Amazon, that funds don't go to feed the form. But if you do purchase directly from the book's website and the publisher, a certain percentage of those proceeds go to feed that form. So okay, that's that would be reviewing that. Yeah, so that, thank that's you for really, that's really important. So I'm going to tell everyone, if you're listening, this is mostly, it's mostly a practitioner book, but there are some things in here that are beneficial for those who have pain. But the book, it's this. It's called A World of Hurt. So I want you to go to this website, www.musculoskeletal-pain.com. Of course, that link will be in the show notes on drjoetata.com forward slash podcast. If you want to email Annie directly, it's worldofhurt with the number two at gmail.com. And if you want to tweet to Annie, it's at worldofhurt2, at worldofhurt2 to tweet to Annie. Annie, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's, it's, Joe, it's thank a pleasure. you. Yes. It's been a pleasure myself. Yes. Of course, at the end of every podcast, I ask each of you to make sure to share this podcast out with your friends and family and colleagues on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you're social. If you're new to listening to the podcast, hop on over to www.drjotata.com forward slash podcast. On the right-hand side, you'll see a little box where you can put your name and email, and I'll send you the latest podcast to your inbox each and every week, and you can join our community of people learning about pain science and the care of pain. I want to thank Annie and, of course, all of you for being here with me this week. Stay tuned. We'll see you next week.
Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast. For more information on this episode and access to links discussed, please visit drjotada.com and click on the podcast tab where you will find the blog post for this and all previous episodes and can sign up for Dr. Joe Tata's email list to receive the latest information on chronic pain. Also, make sure to stay connected on his Facebook page at Dr. Joe Tata. 